Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Very good, very good. It's nice to meet you. If I have not met you, my name is Clay Miner, and I am, as Matt said, the new guy here at Life Point. If I haven't met you yet, please find me at some point. I would love to meet you. Uh, before we get into it this morning, I want to share with you two opportunities that you have here at Life Point. Here's the first one. So when I came on board here at Life Point, one of my biggest priorities was to create some type of college ministry here at Life Point. And so we have successfully done that. We have got that off the ground and running. It's called LP College. Uh, we tried to find some creative, snazzy, awesome name other than LP College. We failed. So it's LP College. But listen closely. I need you to hear what I'm about to say. LP College is not just for those who are in college. It is for college-aged uh, young adults. So if you are, we have several people in LP College who are in the workforce. They are not going to college, probably never intend to go to college. It's perfectly fine. We want you to be a part. So if you're interested in that, what I need you to do is I need you to come see me, maybe see EB, Cody, Hannah, or Jaron, or anyone else who is a part of LP College uh, and ask them more information about that. Um, in many ways, that has become better and more special than I even anticipated for it to be. So it's a really awesome opportunity, very intentionally small and relaxed. So it's an awesome opportunity for you. Also, the second one is uh, we are doing a communication workshop November 14th over in the coffee house. And what this is, is it gives you uh, the ability to look in and have insight on how we build sermons, specifically how Matt builds sermons, uh, so that you can be a better communicator and speaker. So if you are part, if you're a leader in a life group, if you lead a small group of any kind um, here at Life Point, this is a huge opportunity for you at 6.30 on November 14th in the coffee house. So today, this morning, we shall continue in our series on David. So uh, if you haven't caught this uh, yet in this whole story about David, let me tell you something that I find extremely fascinating and cool about the life of David, and I think that we have touched on very well here in this series, and that is that David's life is this huge spiritual roller coaster. Right? Like there, there are times where David is the man after God's own heart. He has these really high highs, and then there's other times where he has these extremely low lows. And so this morning, we get to David the cynic. If you don't know what the word cynic means, it means skeptic. And what you're going to find, what we're going to talk about this morning is, is the reason why we called him David the cynic, the skeptic, is because what David does is he takes a census of Israel. And it's really a story of, that shows how David takes it into his own hands and does not trust the Lord. And so... What that does to me is, is we, we, when we start talking about trusting in yourself and stuff, it reminds me of a very personal story in my own life. Because what I kind of wanted this sermon to be, too, this morning for you is a somewhat of a small way to get to know me a little bit. So that's kind of what this is going to be. Because I can relate very much so with David the Cynic. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, whether this is hard to believe for you or not, I raised goats. And I was totally random, totally random. I raised goats, and which was awesome. It was a, this great experience. The problem is, is goats are expensive to feed. So I come up with this bright idea, right? What I'll do is, is 
stepdad, he, had, he has this, this field right beside this pine forest. And I thought, I will grow corn in that field. And that way I'll grow the corn, I'll harvest it, and then that way I can feed my goats with this corn. It's a great idea. And it worked tremendously. I grew this corn. My grandfather helped me, and it was like this huge bonding experience. It's amazing, right? The corn grows. I harvest it. I feed it to my goats. Awesome. Absolute win. Problem is, is one day afterwards, after I'd harvest this corn, I'm standing out there, and I'm thinking, you know what, I'd kind of like to do this again next year, but the problem is, is you still got all that plant residue, right? You cut, cut the corn down, but there's still these stalks right there, and that's going to make it very difficult to till the soil up. So I got to figure out a way to make that better. Here's what I'll do. I'll just burn it. That's a great idea. Because I've seen people do that before. We'll just burn the, the, the rest of the corn plant up all over this place, and that way it's just clean, and then I'll just till that soil up again. It's a great idea. So that's what I did. I very intentionally chose a day that wasn't too dry. I chose a day that there wasn't a whole lot of wind. I go down there and I get my lighter and light the corn plant, right? So no, no problem. And it was awesome for a while. The, the fire grew, and it was a very small flame, about that big. Wasn't a problem at all until the one little puff of wind that came through that entire day comes through and goes and blows a flame this big right into, some, into that pine thicket, into that pine straw, and catches it on fire. Now, something else that you need to know about me is I'm not a panicky person, typically. I'm not, I'm not really even a nervous person. Like, I just don't get nervous often. So I'm not panicking at this point, right? I, I see the fire in the pine straw. say, this is not good. There's a whole pine forest here. I need to do something about this quick. So I go over there, and I do this little number. I go, right, to try to put it out. And that, that works. Problem is, is that all the air from this is blowing the flames farther. So it's catching more pine straw on fire. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of this, like trying to get this fire put out. And then it starts getting bigger. And then it starts getting bigger. And then I start panicking. And I'm like, I got to do something. I got to figure out, like, this, like, I can't burn this pine forest down. By the way, there's also, like, my stepdad's shop right here on the edge of this forest that will burn to the dadgum ground. So, like, I've got to do something. So here's what I think. I, here's what I'll do. Not call the fire department. <laughs> what I'll do, I'll go get some buckets. That's what I'll do. And I'll just go put this fire out myself. So I go over. Like, the nearest water source is, like, 150 yards away. So I'll run over there, fill the buckets up, get them. And I'm doing this right And then I go back. I run back. I fill the buckets up again, and I'm running to the fire, and I pour it onto this fire, and another little fact about me is at this point, I, you know, my whole life I've been kind of what you'd call skinny fat, so on the outside of my clothing, I kind of look skinny, but on the inside of clothing, I'm kind of pudgy, and I'm definitely out of shape. So at this point, I've got water all over me. I'm huffing and puffing. See, I told you, because I'm already kind of a little winded just from that. <laughs> I'm huffing and puffing. There's water. I'm, I'm like drenched. And it didn't do a dadgum bit of good. Like, all of this fire is still there. And it's in that moment, I'm like, oh. And then afterwards, after, like, this whole thing is over, I start thinking, man, you're a dummy. 
Like for many reasons. But why did you think for one second that a little bucket is going to put out an entire forest fire? Like how much of the forest could you have saved if you would have just called the fire department? Like quit trying to put the fire out with your bucket. Right? And that's where we kind of find David in this story. I know that kind of sounds strange, but it is true. Is we find David in this, this story of self-reliance, right? And, and we'll get more into that in a second. But it says this. It starts out this way. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So let's just stop there for a second. Because it's possible that that sentence wrecked you a little bit like it did me. Because we need to make a couple things clear. I'm not going to touch on it a lot because I think we might actually come back to this at some other point. But here's what we need to understand first and foremost. God does not tempt anyone, nor does he incite anyone to sin. Because if you look at the, the parallel account of this story in 1 Chronicles 21, what it says is that Satan incited David. And so just very simply, I know this is a vague explanation, but what happens here is God uses David's sin to do what God wants to do. He doesn't create sin. He doesn't, you know, make David sin at all. But regardless, it says, go number and Israel, or number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. Here's the first question that we have to ask ourselves in this. Like, so we know, we know the story. David takes the census. If you don't know what a census is, he just counts the people. He wants to know how many fighting warriors he has. But here's the blatant question. It's like, what's wrong with that? Because we know that David takes the census, he numbers the soldiers, and then David or God gets very angry with David. Very angry. But why? Because ask yourself this. Just be honest for a second. Like if we, if we take this story, and it's not in the Bible, and it's just a real life story, and I, you, know, you have this option to where you go and number. If I asked you, is it a sin for a leader to go number his people and his fighting men? what would you say? Not only would you say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no sin in that. Not only would you say that, you might would also say, well, that's the wise thing to do. It would be foolish not to count your people. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, what we find is not only are there multiple other spots in the Old Testament where they number their people, take a census, and God doesn't get mad at them, there's also places where God commands them to take a census. In fact, also Jesus himself, in Luke 14, he's going to tell this parable, and he says this, he makes this statement. He says, what king, if he's going out to war with another king, would not first see his men of 10,000 could defeat 20,000? So you have Jesus saying that it makes sense to number your men. So if it makes logical sense to take a census. If there are other places in the Old Testament where they take a census and it's okay, there are places where God commands them to do so and it's okay, and it makes all logical sense, and even Jesus said it makes sense, 
to take a census. Why does God get upset with David when he does it? It's a really interesting question. And here's the, here's the answer to it. God doesn't necessarily get mad at David for taking a census. He gets mad at David for the why of why he took the census. David, why are you taking a census? That is what God gets mad at David for. Because if you look at the chapters before 2 Samuel 24, here's what you'll find. You'll find that David has really rebound from the whole Bathsheba incident. Of course, we had the whole debacle with Absalom, like we heard about last week. But since then, David's kind of killing it. Like, he, he saved him from a famine. He defended his crown from people who revolted against him. He's come up with creative solutions to difficult problems. And he has defeated the Philistines from taking over Israel. In all manner, in all way that you look at it, David is succeeding and doing well. And therein lies the problem. Because sometimes success is more dangerous than failure. Because on the back of success, you have this evil bug called pride. And what it will do is it will infect your heart. And it will take everything that God has done around you and for you. And it will attribute it to you. Look what I have done. Look at how I have achieved. Look at all the things that I have accomplished. And David is right in the thick of it. David, in his mind, he's, look at what I have done for Israel. Israel is the leader of the land because of me. And then you have this story. Because David is known for two great mistakes. The one is the obvious one with Bathsheba. The less known one is this story right here, where he takes a census simply to puff up his own pride of what he's done for Israel. And I can relate to it. I don't know if you can, because I'm going to be honest with you. Like, there's a reason why I'm preaching this one, David the Cynic, because I tend to have this prideful self-reliance too. Because the way I grew up is you don't call somebody, you don't pay somebody, you do it yourself. Right? The faucet breaks, well then, well then you go and fix the faucet. You don't call a plumber. If you, if you need a repair done on something on your house, you don't call a handyman. You do it yourself. If your car breaks down, you better figure out, try to figure out somehow a way to fix that and break four or five other things in the process. The way I grew up, the way I was taught was this self-reliance. Like, we are he-man. We are man. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm so thankful for the way that I grew up. So thankful. It's made me useful in so many ways. But the problem is, is that sometimes... That self-reliance will find its way leaking into my spiritual life. To where, Clay, you are so capable. You are so useful. You are so resilient. You don't need God. You can do everything on your own. Look at what you've achieved in your life. Look at the crowds you have. Look at all of the wonderful things that you have done. And I'm telling you, it is this evil bug of pride that infects our heart and it has infected David here with this story. So much so, 
So much so that he doesn't listen. He doesn't take heed to anything else. Think about this, for example, when we talk about pride. Like, there's nothing wrong. Maybe you've made some really, really good, wise business decisions, and you've made a lot of money off of it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also nothing wrong with you checking your savings account to see how much money you've made. There's nothing wrong with that, unless you're checking your savings account just to boast in yourself. Like, look at my wise business decisions. Look how awesome I am. Look what I have accomplished and achieved. I have built this financial comfort all on my own. Possibly more applicable, think about this. Like, there's nothing wrong with us, life point, taking attendance and counting how many people we have at our gatherings. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless the reason why we do that is to, like, puff ourselves up because we've got a good attendance and there's other churches that don't and they're actually shutting their doors. Look at us. Look at what we've done to get people in the door. We are an incredible church. We're awesome. It's the bug of pride that will infect our hearts and take you places you never want to go. It does, David. So, so much so that he doesn't recognize the bad decision that he's about to make and he don't listen to the people when they tell him to not make it. Look what it says. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Here's what's interesting about this. So several weeks back, Q, uh, uh, when he teach, taught, he was talking about Know your Nathan, the importance of knowing and having someone in your life who is willing to speak truth in your life when you're about to make a horrible decision, regardless of the consequences of the relationship. Someone in your life who is willing to say, stop, you're about to make a horrible mistake and not just be a bandwagoner and follow you right into it. And then last week, Matt talked about them, how, how Amnon ha somewhat had that, how someone told him, stop. Stop what you're doing, and he wouldn't even listen. And what we have here is, is both, all in the same verse. Because here, David has a Nathan, and his name is Joel right here. And Joel is trying to, to, to tell David, this makes no sense. Really interestingly, he, he almost says exactly the same thing to David that God said to David after the Bathsheba incident. If you remember, what God tells David is, is, is he comes to David and he says... David, I gave you everything. You had all of these blessings. You had all of these awesome riches and wonders. And if you, even if that wasn't enough, if you would have just asked, I'd have gave you more. And what Joel is trying to say to David here is, why are we doing this? If you need more men, if you need more soldiers, all you have to do is ask God and he will give us 100 times what we already have. It makes zero sense to take a census right now. Why are you doing this? But the problem is, is that David's heart is infected with pride. And what pride will do to you is it will convince you that you are the smartest person in the room, you have all the wisdom, and it will never, ever lead you to ask for the wisdom and advice of others. Because you are wise. You're the smartest person in this whole situation. Why would I ever ask for help when I'm all that I ever need? Why would I ask for someone's opinion when 
I already know what I need to do. And this is what it does to David. It infects him in such a way he will not listen to sound logic and advice and wisdom. It doesn't matter if Joel had like a hundred reasons to tell David as to why this is a bad deal. He would have never listened because he already made up his mind. It doesn't matter if he would have like brought out a whiteboard and drew it for him or had this like complicated Venn diagram just to show him how dumb this is and how this is from your own prideful, infected heart. It would not have mattered because David is in the middle of this pride and it has convinced him to listen to no one other than his own heart. That's what pride does to us. In fact, it'll also twist us in such a way to where like, we start making all kinds of excuses or even spiritualize it. Like, why would I ask for advice from people for this situation? They don't know my circumstance like I do. That's what we tell ourselves. Or, hey, God just wants me to be happy, so that's why I need to do this. Right? And what we have to recognize is that we, don't, we need other people. Like this self-reliant pride that tries to teach us and tell us that we know everything, that we are the smartest person in the room, that we're incredible, that we're amazing, and you don't need anybody else, that is pride, and it will destroy us. So he didn't listen to Joel, and he goes on and says, But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So what happens is they indeed go and do the census. They go out into all of the nation of Israel. They number the men, the fighting warriors, just like David asks them to do. And so Joab comes back to David and he says, there you go, David. I did what you wanted me to. You have 800,000 from Israel. You have 500,000 from Judah. And immediately, this is so interesting. I need you to listen. Like This whole story like I said, is the second major mistake of David. But he makes this horrible mistake, but after that, he starts making all the right decisions in regards to his consequence. You'll see what I'm talking about. But here's what happens. It says, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. In just a snap, David realizes what he's done. That he has went against the Lord. He has sinned against God. And what's so, so amazing about these verses of Scripture is how much David contrasts Saul. Because if you look at Saul, every time Saul jacked up and messed up, he always made all these excuses, right? Like even when they told him, like, you've sinned against God, Saul starts making all kinds of excuses as to why he needed to do what he did. Not David. No one even had to tell David. It says David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And this is so interesting because we're all like this, right? Like even when, even when, so, when we get in trouble and we see that we've messed up, we immediately start making excuses. We st immediately start trying to justify what we've done and start telling God why it was okay that we did what we did even though he says it's wrong. You know, it's funny because I watch a lot of football and I'm actually uh, have the privilege to like video, do, be the videographer for the football team at the high school in Albertville. And so I'm on the sidelines a lot. And like I said, I watch a lot. And it, it's, it's, it always 
cracks me up every time they throw a penalty against a, a football team because what happens is they throw a penalty and then immediately the coach goes and runs over there and he's screaming and yelling, like making his case as to why this penalty should not be put against them. Like every time. But you know what I've never seen ever? Like maybe it's just because I'm 26. I don't know. Maybe this has occurred. But what I've never seen is for the official to, to come out and go, call on the field is holding against the offense would be a 10-yard penalty and repeat a first down. But I've been over there on the sideline with the coach. We've been talking, and he's made some good points. And so therefore, we're not going to do this penalty today, right? It never happens, ever. I've never seen it happen. You know why it doesn't happen? Because the officials are the law of the land. What they say goes. If they call a penalty and they put it against a team, even if it's the wrong thing, it's still going to happen. And what we as Christians must realize and, and lean into is it's the same way with God and his law. What he says goes. He calls us to holiness not because he's some mean, horrible God, but instead because he is God and he knows. And, and here's what's really important about this, and listen closely. God doesn't discipline us when we go against his law because he's a mean, hateful, terrible God. He does that because he knows what's best for your life better than you do. And so, according to the book of Hebrews, when God disciplines us because we've messed up, it's not because he is hateful, it's because he loves us. And so what we have to learn is the same thing that David has learned, obviously. Is that when we are faced with the consequences of, of our problems and where we've messed up, instead of wasting time coming up with all kinds of reasons why it was okay to do what we did even though it's not, instead we just lean into God. I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to justify he merely states the obvious and takes it. And, do, and, and takes it, he does. Because the next day, the prophet Gad comes to David and he says, The Lord has spoken. You have three choices. There are three possible solutions to this. Either one, you have three years of famine in the land of Israel. Two, you have three months of fleeing from your enemies. Or three, you have three days of plague, sickness, pestilence in the land. So what's really interesting about this is, is you have this progression. If you look at the three consequences, they get shorter, but they also get more intense. The first one, three years of famine. Yeah, that's three years, but I mean, they've dealt with famine before. I'm not saying it's not bad, but it's the, it's the least of the three. Then the second one, it's just three months, so our time frame got smaller, but it's three, year, or three months of you running from your enemies. David has done that already with Saul and with Absalom. He knows the cost and the consequence that comes with that. And then the third one, it's just three days. All it is is three days. But it's three days of plague, pestilence, the most intense of the three options. And what I find so incredible, so, so interesting about this, is what David chooses. Because look what he says. He says, Then David said to Gad, 
I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David chooses the third most intense option. Three days of plague. Why would he do that? Why in the world would God, or uh, so, sorry, David choose three days, the most intense punishment possible? Why would he do that? Let me tell you why I think he does. I think the answer is right here. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. The reason why he chooses the third most intense option is because the, the third option is the only one that only includes God, and he knows God better than he knows man. I don't want to choose the other because I'm going to have to fall into the hands of man. I don't know what they'll do, but I know my God. I know that he's merciful. I know that he's compassionate. I know that he's loving. And if we fall into his hands, it will be bad. There will be consequence to my mistake, but he will have mercy on us. I know he will. He knows he will because there was one night he was out on his roof and he saw a woman bathing. And he said, bring her to me. He had relations with Bathsheba. She got pregnant. And then he had her husband killed. The biggest blunder of David's reign. And yet God had mercy on him. He chooses the third option that includes God's mercy because he knows God and he knows his mercy because he's experienced it. And what we have to do is, look, we're human beings. We're going to jack up. We're going to have times in our lives where we don't trust in God. We just, we just will. We're prideful. And when those times come, we lean in to God and his mercy and his love and his compassion because we know him. David goes further and he says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Here's what's so interesting about this whole story is if you look at David at the beginning of the story and then look at David at the end, these are two totally different individuals. David at the beginning is this prideful, boast-up, self-reliant guy. Let me show you how I've done all of these incredible things for Israel. Then we get to the end, and not only... Is he taking the brunt, but he's also taking the responsibility of everything that happened. This problem in Israel is not because of Israel, it's because of me. That's what David says. When we jack up and pride infects our heart and we start getting self-reliant and we start making decisions without God, we don't trust him, we own it. And we proceed just like David did in making the right decisions. So what's the bottom line this morning? Bottom line is this. Don't count trust. See, because in everyone's life, there comes a moment, if not multiple moments, when God asks you to do something. He calls you to do something. And almost every time, at least in my experience, it almost never makes sense. It almost always seems foolish, and it almost always seems illogical. And the question that we have in those moments is whether or not, will I trust in God? Will I have faith when faith seems foolish? 
I think of the Hilburns, for example. You look at the Hilburns, think about their, their whole situation. They just went to Scotland to be missionaries. One day, I don't know, I've never asked Chris how it went, but God calls their family, hey, I need you to leave all of your loved ones, all of your friends, all of your children's friends, the church that loves you dearly, where you find the most comfort and the biggest refuge. I need you to leave them, go across the Atlantic to a nation that is foreign to you and where you know no one and live every single day out of pure faith because you don't know what the next day will hold. Wow, that seems logical. It seems the exact opposite, and it's because it's God's call. And so I'm saying every single one of us at some point in our life are called by God to do something that seems foolish. And in those moments, we have to decide what we're going to do. We're going to lean on some prideful self-reliance to start counting our men, building a fire. By the way, I, I later learned that it's actually better for the soul if you don't even burn the corn. The question is, is are you going to count your men or are you going to trust God? Because he's going to call you to do something. So maybe perhaps you're sitting here this morning and that call is simply salvation. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus. And the reason you don't know Jesus is because knowing Jesus seems really foolish to you. Like this idea that, that, that God would descend his throne come on this earth and walk as a man and then die on a cross for our sins and then resurrect just seems so foolish to you and so dumb that you're just struggling to, get, to submit to him and to give him your life. And what I'm, what I'm just saying this morning is if the Holy Spirit's beckoning your heart, it's there tugging and telling you, are you going to count your men or are you going to trust him? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you might be a child of God, but your whole world is on fire right now. It's all coming down. All kinds of problems are in your life, and you've been trying to put it out. Put a whole big old forest fire out with, with buckets of water. And you have to make the decision, do I count, or do I put my bucket down and trust the Lord? Regardless, we all have this decision to make this, this, the times in our life where we have to decide do we count or do we trust and I'm just saying don't count, trust God don't mean we don't plan, don't mean we don't seek wisdom and advice but it does mean that we trust God we trust Jesus let's pray your heavenly father I thank you for this day God, I thank you for this church I thank you for every person in this room and Lord, we know, we know that we are all too often tempted to, to just do things on our own. Lord, to lean into some prideful self-reliance and to not trust you, God. But I, Lord, I just ask you, ask you to point out those places in our lives, in my own life, God, where pride is taken over and I'm just trying to be self-reliant. Show them to me, Lord, and then give me the strength to walk out of that, God. Lord, if there are some here this morning and they don't know you, and the reason they don't know you is just because you seem so foolish to them, Lord, I pray that you would destroy them right now until they do, Lord, that you would, you would 
Speak to their hearts and show them your love and your grace and your mercy. Help them trust you, God. Lord, I pray that as we go about our lives, Lord, as we continue down this path of life, Lord, that you would continuously show us our need for you. You are our sustainer and our provider, God, and do not let us forget that. Lord, help us daily see how big and incredible and wonderful and loving and marvelous you are. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator, the living God, and you died on the cross for us. So, Lord, I pray that we would live our lives through that. Help us put down our bucket. Stop trying to fix our lives on our own. And instead, Lord, trust you. With our arms open wide, Lord, we would run to you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.